Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, we're in our third week of our series called How To, and we're kind of discussing some of the most difficult conversations that we can have as, as people and specifically as Christians. And the first week was kind of like guiding principles and like how do you really, it was kind of broad in theme and scope and you could really apply those principles to every difficult conversation. But then also last week we got a little bit more specific. This week's going to be very specific. And last week it was about how to leverage a relationship for the gospel. Not just how to do it, but why we're supposed to and all those other things. It, it, that message is online if you missed it. I know a lot of people have, uh, have said positive things about it, so I know that it impacted folks. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Nehemiah 6 as we're in our third week. If you don't have a Bible... Um, it's cool. We have kind of Bibles spread out in the chairs, maybe somewhere around you. Um, if you need to tap on someone's shoulder and say, hey, uh, can I get the Bible under your seat? Um, this is what we do. So it's all good. But this week, I'll be honest with you, I've been wrestling with this topic. I've known that we were supposed to cover this for some time. And even this week, I've been wrestling with bringing this message to you all. Because as, if you're, if you're a Christian specifically, this is one of the conversations and is something that's presented within a church because a church is full of broken people. Can we say amen to that? And broken people bring their mess into the church. So there, there's some difficulty with even me bringing this message out because it's A, not talked about very much at church because it's delicate. And then also because those who do it don't want to be exposed for it. So it's difficult. And I, I, to kind of get this set up and then you'll see what the topic is, I, I want to uh, just say this. If you are on Twitter, you probably have seen these types of things. We've been talking about conversations and it's kind of interesting. About, I don't know, probably four or five months ago, I'm on Twitter and I, I do Facebook and Twitter and all that. If you do or don't, it's really irrelevant. This is my story. So I'm on Twitter and, and I'm kind of going through there, and all of a sudden, they just, people just start putting things on, on Twitter that Eddie Murphy had died. And I'm just like, Eddie Murphy died? I'm like, I can't even believe Eddie Murphy died. And then, and then I go, and, I, and I'm, I start to look on Twitter, and a link to someone's blog, and they're like, yeah, Eddie Murphy died in a, in a snow skiing accident in like Switzerland or something. I'm like, Eddie Murphy, no more Shrek, no more donkey, what are we going to do? Like, I was destroyed. So I'm like, Eddie Murphy died, and I was just like... Wow, you know, I felt like I should tell somebody. I'm like, Eddie Murphy. I'm like, everybody knows who Eddie Murphy is. He's been around forever. I'm like, Eddie Murphy has died. And then as I kind of sift through the day and as I'm hearing about this, all of a sudden there starts to be this, this countering thing saying, actually, it's a hoax. Eddie Murphy's not dead. He's very much alive. But yet, it's still like the, the you know, they're kind of going back and forth. No, he's really dead. He, he you know, he died in a, in a skiing accident and all these things. And all of a sudden, Eddie Murphy comes out on his Twitter and he says, uh, I'm very much alive and what you heard is not true. Well, upon further investigation, apparently that was the fourth time that he's been claimed dead on Twitter, which was interesting. So then made me do further research and people like Morgan Freeman, uh, Aretha Franklin, um, and uh, who's the other... I'm trying to think of, oh, Bill Cosby. Apparently he has died three times on Twitter as well. You know, it's interesting that once we start to hear those things, we automatically think they're true. 
We automatically think they're true. I mean, I bought it. I was just like, oh my goodness, I need to go tell somebody that he died. It's like, what are we going to do? No more Shrek. No more Shrek 15 or whatever they're on right now. You know, we're, we're, we're at a loss. And so all of a sudden, I was just kind of really stirred on, on what to do and, and all these things. But then upon further investigation, I found out what was really true. But it was so easy for me just to receive all that media gossip. It was easy for me to receive it. It was almost natural. I was just like receiving it and I automatically thought it was true. You know, the same thing kind of happens in churches today. We all agree the church is full of broken people. Same thing happens in churches today. We start to hear things and instead of going to the source to find out if it's actually true, we just automatically think that it is true. What a disservice to the Lord. What a disservice to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and such a, a, a terrible thing, this, you know, media gossip can create such a firestorm. But if I'm honest, church gossip can do the exact same thing. Now you know what we're talking about today. It's probably going to be quiet for a while. I'm ready for that. The message is going to be broke into two parts. And I just kind of kind of set the stage for you, a little signpost so you know what's going on. First half of the message is going to be talking about and helping you discern what gossip is. We're going to talk about the source of gossip and those types of things. And then we're going to have like just a, a kind of a breakaway from that and then specifically how to counter gossip and going to be very practical on how you can counter gossip, not only Christian to Christian, but hopefully we can, I can lend to some ideas to help you even in the workplace because does gossip happen in the workplace? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But first, I want to set up this, uh, this passage in Nehemiah 6. Um, Nehemiah himself is a, is a, is a cupbearer to the king. And he's a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And by a cupbearer, what that means is, it, kind of their tradition, their custom, is after they would have this meal, uh, their meals, then the king would want to sip some wine. Well, a guy like Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He would sit next to the king, and then he would smell the wine, and maybe he would sip the wine, the very wine that the king would drink to see if it was poisoned. So if you're a a good cupbearer, the king was alive, and so were you, right? If you were a bad one, nobody will really remember you. You'll just be a blip on the screen, and you're out of there. So he was the cupbearer to the king, and it, it is he's a Jewish man in, uh, in at a time when the Persians controlled uh, the Jewish people and the Jewish land. So he had kind of rose to this position, was very highly esteemed position of cupbearer to the king. Uh, something, I mean, literally the king would trust, entrust to him um, his life into Nehemiah. So a guy like Nehemiah was a Jewish man, kind of, he was torn because he's, he's living amongst the Persians, he's being lifted high amongst the Persians, and yet he's a Jewish man. Well, all of a sudden, uh, Nehemiah kind of gets this story uh, from his brother and from other folks, and, and they come to him with urgency, and they said, hey, the city of Jerusalem is in a shambles right now. The city of Jerusalem, the walls are down, the gates are down, the doors are gone. The, the city itself has been, has been just demolished, and it is in a shambles. So Nehemiah, is, he's not really a leader of any sorts. He's just a cupbearer to the king, comfortably in his position in, in the Persian Empire. But he gets this message from his brother and these other folks and he has this stirring in his heart and he says, I cannot sit and look at, at my city and my people enduring such hardship. So Nehemiah decides that he's actually going to go and he says, you know what, I need to do something about it. 
So he goes to talk to the Persian king. His name was Artaxerxes. And he goes to talk to the Persian king and he talks to him and he says, hey, I need some time off of work. I would like to go back to my homeland to help shore up the city. I've heard that my city is in real disrepair and the people are really lost and, and they're not safe. The king thinks about it and the king says, cool. Pretty sure he said cool. Probably fit in their culture too. But he says, cool, you can go. He said, you can go on one condition. That after the city is, is back together and the walls are built and the doors are hung and the gates are hung, after that happens, that you would come back and that you would come back to your position as the cupbearer. So Nehemiah says, absolutely, no problem, I'll do it. So Nehemiah gets these marching orders to go back to Jerusalem, of which this is, uh, if, you're, if you're a studier of Old Testament history, there were three exile groups that went back to Jerusalem. This is the third one. So the people were already established. They'd already been established for about 100 years, but yet no leader had really rose among them to actually do anything amongst the city. So Nehemiah goes in like a firestorm, and he, they, he's appointed as the governor. So he's kind of like the, the social and, and political guy. He goes in as the governor, and as he's sh- trying to, to rally people together to, to start putting together supplies and, and manpower to start doing the work, and he encourages the people. He says, okay, there's, I want you to build the walls right next to your house. He wanted the people to, to have ownership in it, as a good leader should. So as he goes on, he faces some opposition. All, all amongst that, he's also bringing about these social reforms and he's helping with the poor people there as well, not just the work of the wall, but also helping the poor. But yet there are these, these characters that we see in, in the Scripture, and you'll see right out of the gate, um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. Then they, they oppose the work that's going on in the city of Jerusalem. And they oppose him, and I'll let you know how. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of the enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. So what happens is, they're really rocking and rolling. He's, he's rallying the troops. People are excited. People are accepting ownership into the work. And he, he is doing what a good leader should, and he's motivating people to do this and rebuild the city. And then you see these, these people, represented by Sambalat, Tobiah, and, and Geshub, who was an Arab, they're opposing the work. They're opposing the work specifically because they were feeling insecure thinking that he was rising and the people would actually gain uh, too much influence over them so that they wouldn't be able to control the Jewish people. So in verse 2, Sanballat and Geshub sent this message, Come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But look what Nehemiah says. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, that's what you call persistence. The fifth time Sambalat sent his aide to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, 
you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. But there is a king in Judah. Now this report will get to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up in your head. Wouldn't you love to say that to somebody who's like, you know, who's gossiping? You're just making it up in your head. Ending in verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it would not be completed. So they were, they were fearful that Nehemiah would actually rally the people up and they would get excited and then revolt over their leadership. So their response to that was that they would talk amongst themselves and they would try and gossip amongst themselves and try and get other people in, involved into their party and start to spread these lies in hopes that the rest of the people would not follow suit and that the work in Jerusalem would stop. One of the points uh, for us to kind of lend to this morning is this. Gossip is a dangerous sin. Gossip is a dangerous sin. That's not earth-shattering, but I just want to bring your attention to something, if you would, please. Um, we are going to uh, look at... Uh, hold your place there and go to Proverbs 6, verse 16. It's only over a couple books. To the right in your Bible should be really easy to find. This is uh, one of the things when the Lord talks about the words that are used and how the Lord feels about gossip and things of that nature. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. When you see this in Scripture, that means that that's not really a complete list. Haughty eyes, which means blatantly proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that, that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers, among Christians. Gossip is a dangerous sin. It's a dangerous sin in the church because the church should be a place that although we're broken people, we, every single person, should be able to come into this place and bring our baggage into this place and put it at the feet of Jesus without, without worry or expectation that somebody would look, da- look down on me or that somebody would judge me or that somebody would judge you. But that we would be transparent enough to say, you know what, yeah, I'm broken. Not all of my life is put together. But truth is, no one else's life is put together either. The reason why the gossip is such a dangerous sin is because the church was always meant to be a safe place to come for Christians or non-Christians. It was always meant to be. And when, when the church as, as people gets perverted with the idea of gossip and the backbiting and the speaking lies amongst us, it taints all of us. It's a dangerous, dangerous sin. A couple things about that. Gossip. If, if you tend to gossip, maybe you're, you're just, it's, it's a natural thing to you. I'm not meaning this, I'm not making light of this, but if you feel like, you know, it's really easy for me to talk about other people, and it's easy for me to talk about other people um, 
you know, and, and never to confront that individual. I just want you to know that gospelers need to, to repent. It is a dangerous sin in need of repentance. A repentance turning away from it, recognizing that it is, it is sin, it is error before God, and you need to turn away from that and just recognize it and repent of that. It's a, it's a dangerous sin in need of repentance. The Word says in Proverbs 16.28 that, that gossip separates close friends. If you, if you wonder why you don't have close friends... Maybe it's because you don't, you don't respect your friendship enough and you gossip about other people. And I certainly wouldn't want to be a friend of yours if you gossiped about other people because chances are you're also gossiping about me. Gossip separates close friends. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight. Gossip disqualifies persons from spiritual leadership. 1 Timothy three eleven. If you're someone to say, you know what? I, 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 I want to I raise my, uh, my, my faith and, and all of these things and I want to become a spiritual leader. I, 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 would, I, I think that maybe the Lord in the years to come would want me to be a spiritual leader in the church. And it's a, it's a worthy calling to be a spiritual leader in the church. That's what the Word says. I just want you to know that gossip disqualifies persons from doing that. Gossip disqualifies you from doing that. Why in the world would you be entrusted with valuable information if I thought that was going to go somewhere else? Doesn't make sense, does it, church? At the end of the second verse, Sambalat and Geshem, back to our scripture, Nehemiah 6, verse 2. It says this, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. This is what they're saying to Nehemiah in their words. But their motives are revealed in Nehemiah's, the next sentence of that verse. But they were, what? Scheming to harm me. They they didn't want to just meet me. They wanted to take him out. They weren't just wanting to meet Nehemiah. They wanted the work to stop. They were idlers and busybodies. and, And he stood in opposition to them. They wanted the work to stop. So they thought, well, if I could just trick him and pulling him away from other people. Oh, this is so interesting in the church. When Christians, when gossip, what it does, it separates them from the rest of the body and then exposes them. And and puts them full exposure to the enemy. But what Nehemiah does, he says, but they were scheming to harm me. And my point for this is a gossip's motives always surface. A gossip's motives always surface. Something to help us, there's going to be a list of things on the screen. And, and, you know, this is one of those things, this may be profitable for you to maybe write some of these things down. And maybe it's, maybe not the whole list, but maybe there's just something there that, that the Holy Spirit would trigger in you to say, I need to pay better attention to this. Something is wrong. This needs to be righted then I would just say to to write this down. Let's get that list, Dustin. Back up one. Gossip thrives in secrecy. A gossip will never, it it won't be a public conversation. It's always in secret. The second thing, it's always masked by a concern. It's like, oh, it's like, a, you know, and this happens in, in Bible studies and prayer groups and we'll sit down in a prayer group and, oh Lord, I please, please help 
Sister Susie, I know she's cheating on her husband, and I know that she's da-da-da-da, and all these things, and you're thinking, good night, this is a prayer group, and you're just airing dirty laundry, and all these things are going on. It's always masked by a concern. I'm just so worried about her. I just cannot believe that she da-da-da-da-da. And yet, they're not talking to Susie. They're talking to everybody else. It's always masked by a concern. It contributes to a problem, but never a solution. It's like, oh, I'm just talking about Susie. Because if it were, if it were contributing to a solution, the individual would be talked to, wouldn't they? If you need to have a personal conversation, don't do it in a group setting. Do it in an individual setting. Next thing, gossip is not a reliable source. I, I learned this quite well when I was in children's ministry. We would help teach the kids these lessons, and I actually thought about doing it this morning, but it would be, it would be awkward. It would be funny for me, but awkward for you, so there you go. It's my gift. But it's something we used to do with kids. Is we used to line the kids up in front of everyone else. The kids like to do this. And I would tell the first child something, and as I would tell that child, I would say, just tell that exact same thing to the next person. And by the time it got five or ten kids down the rung, it would be completely different. The message, if you've been in children's ministry, you've probably done this. It's a great way to kind of illustrate that point. And what it does, it takes you so far from what the truth was originally. That's what gossip does. It's not a reliable source. Because chances are, if you're gossiping about something, it's going to be gossip to somebody else. And then the farther you get away from it, the farther, you're, the farther you get into gossip, the farther you get from the truth. It's not a reliable source. Next thing. Those who do it are not in the right relationship with God. Book of Romans says this. They're not in the right relationship with God. If you're, if you're a, a gossiper and you're a slanderer, I say this with humility. The word says blatantly in Romans 1 that, that you, you're not in right fellowship with God. Because if you're right in the right fellowship with God, that will show and that will rear itself and you'll be in right fellowship with other people. There's always a source of gossip. There's always a source. And usually with gossip, it comes out of some anger, some hurt, or it's envy-driven. Like this, these are the motives for gossip. Just so you know, it's like often if they, they have this insecurity or they're angry about something, and yet they don't have, they're, they're kind of cowardice really, and they're afraid to go actually have the conversation because it's a difficult conversation. And yet in response to that, they just take it upon themselves and then, and then they just start spreading that gossip to other people. They just start spreading it. But there's always a motive behind it. It's always either envy-driven. I'm just so envious of that person. I wish, I wish I had what they had. and I can't believe they do that. I wish I had the body that she had. She can eat whatever she wants. I, why, I, I wish she wouldn't even wear the clothes that she's wearing. Most of the time, it's not the clothes that's the problem. It's the fact that they can do things that you can't. And it's envy. Or, oh, I can't believe they spend their money on boats and they have, you know, they have the hunting club and they have all these things. I can't believe they spend their money there. The problem isn't with the hunting club or the clothes or the stuff. The problem is you don't have what they have and it's envy-driven. And we talk about them and we gossip about them. Instead of maybe saying, you know what? Maybe their finances are more in order than yours and maybe we shouldn't pass judgment so quickly and talk about them. Next one's my favorite. Gossip stops when you stop listening. It stops when you stop listening. I, I was actually confronted with this yesterday, literally yesterday. Public 
uh, public experience, you know, environment. I'm just kind of sitting there talking, and this person kind of has some some resentment and anger issues, and I'm sitting here talking, and I'm like, I, I have no idea why. Maybe it was just like, hey, I'm like the gossip sponge, so he's just like, let me have it, and he's telling me these different things, and the thing that I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, I don't really deserve this, and my initial response was, okay, I recognize what's happening. It's amazing how God will do that. Like I recognize what's happening, but I wanted to be careful so that I wasn't a, a, a willing participant in what he was saying. And the way that I handled it is the same way that I would tell you to handle it, and we'll find that out in a moment. I ran uh, across a quote recently. I love this. This is by a, a guy by the name of Doug Fields. He's very much a, he's like the youth pastor of youth pastors. He just has some huge youth ministry and the movement is, uh, is well beyond him. I think it started with Saddleback and it's just really exploded um, out of that. But this is, quote, When people are busy rowing the boat, they don't have time to rock it. When people are busy rowing the boat, and he's talking about the church. He says, when people are busy rowing the boat, they don't have time to rock it. So I thought I'd make a point of it. It's going to be on the screen next. Gossip keeps the boat rocking. Just keeps the boat rocking. It just keeps that boat rocking. Um, I, I think I asked you that question, this question last week. But how many people like got hung up on the Olympics uh, when it was on? Just raise your hand. It's cool. You're not like admitting to gossip or anything. Just raise your hand. Olympics. So there were three of us. Okay. I'm thinking today should have been about lying, but I'm not really sure. Um, a lot of us did, right? I'll give you another shot. Olympics. Anyone watch them this year? A couple more people came clean. Good. I watched more of the Olympics this year than I really cared to, probably because it was on like every channel except C-SPAN. And C-SPAN is not even a channel as far as I'm concerned. That's just a reason for a nap. That's all that is. But it's like it's on every channel and this thing was covered and this thing was covered. And I watched more water polo and I feel like this is confessional. I watched more water polo this year than what I've ever watched in my entire life. And I feel dirty about that somehow. I don't know why. It's like, when I'm sitting here watching the Olympics and watching water polo, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, do I have anything better to do than watch water polo? And then, I'm not a real big fan of this, but, and really, I mean, there was like volleyball. I know people have mixed emotions. They're like, man, I love volleyball. I really don't love volleyball. And, and I'm, I found myself watching men's volleyball, of all things. I'm thinking to myself, what grown man like grows up and says, I want to be a professional beach volleyball player? I mean, granted, I didn't grow up at the beach, but I'm not saying that that is, is the case. But, but as I, I watched the Olympics, something did intrigue me, though. As, as I'm flipping through one Olympic channel to the next, I got hung up on the men's rowing eight team, which I don't even know why they call it rowing eight, because actually there are nine people, there are eight rowers, and then there's the bowmen. What's interesting about this is, as I'm watching this, this rowing and this competition of which we did, the one I was watching, we actually didn't do very well. But they would go in a straight line and everybody would take the direction of the bowman. And the bowman would be facing the team and the team would be facing in the direction that they're going. Who, who have seen this? This is really interesting. And the bowman would be giving instructions on what to do right or, you know, left, right. What, what do you do? Now you need to, to pull harder on this side because the idea is if you start drifting more to the side, you cause the team to work harder. They want to make sure it's streamlined because the more they can cut through the water directly, the easier it is and the more of an opportunity for them to actually win against their competition. 
And as I'm watching this, it so, it so reminds me, and I was reminded of this, on the idea of gossip. Because gossip keeps the boat rocking. And for them, could you imagine if one of those rowers, as they're taking the instruction, right? Is that what the, that's how they do it? Something like that. I'm like rowing a canoe right now. Sorry. But anyway, so, you know, could you imagine if, if the bowman would say, hard right, and then all of a sudden, the team just stopped on the right-hand side. And then they would just be spinning in a big circle. That'd be a pretty cool circle because it's like a long, weird-looking boat structure thing. But, but they would just be veered off course, wouldn't they? And I bet if there were even one person on that team who stopped rowing, they would start going in circles. I have to tell you, this is the same thing that happens in the body of Christ. Because as a church, we're supposed to be... Because the church is not a building, it's not an institution, it's a movement of people bent and compelled because the resurrection of Jesus Christ to go out into our community and to share the light of Jesus Christ to those that are around us. And if one person is off, or one person is gossiping, and one person remains idle, then the whole movement gets shifted in a different direction. Instead of us working together and maybe rowing together to go out and find those lost people who are broken in our community, all of a sudden, now we're having to talk to other Christians to say, hey, we're, we're off course here. Why are we doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you standing in opposition to the Word of God? Don't you realize that we're wasting energy here talking about gossiping and, 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 and idle and, and being you know, just idle and not serving and not working and all these things. And all of a sudden, we're, we're exhausted on you when yet there are people who are drowning. And all we have to do is row in their direction to lift them up. But gossip just keeps the boat rocking. 1 Timothy 5.13 says this. This is talking about people who, who are idle, who are not serving. Besides, he says, they get in the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So what's written here in the Word, it says, the natural inclination is, as soon as we stop and we become idle as Christians, and we stop doing the work of Christ, and maybe we take a step back and we, we're, just, we're, we're not really a participant, we're just kind of like in the audience and kind of looking. He says, the natural inclination is that we're going to start talking about them. Because we're not, we're not rowing the boat. Instead, we're just deciding to rock the boat. And what's written here, he says, this is, this is a natural thing. They get in the habit of being idle. And they stop using their hands and their heart and they just start using their mouth. And he says, not only do they become idlers, but they also become gossips and busybodies. Busybodies, that means they're concerned with everybody else's business except their own. And he says, saying things that they ought not to. And I would say Christians need to be productive. This is, I've wrestled with, with this information in, in with this topic, but yet I really knew in the bottom of my heart that for us as a church, if we're to go to, to be rowing together to seeking that which is lost and away from God, that it takes every single one of us. That there has to be a lot less phone calls and there has to be a lot less prayer groups talking about other people's problems and instead of asking God, say, God, reveal to me what my problem is because I want to serve you better. I'm not concerned with, with the, how they're serving you. 
I, I want ownership of this. I want to serve you better. Because I know that I have a part to play. And I know that, that I, have a, I have an oar in my hand that I'm supposed to be helping to reach that what was lost and far away from God. And gossip just keeps that boat rocking. This point became very clear for uh, Marla and I several years ago. We had the opportunity, of which my urging really, but I think Marla had a better opportunity than me, or a better uh, time than me. But uh, we decided to go whitewater rafting. If you've been whitewater rafting, you know exactly what I'm talking about with this message. If you have not, you have lost it. You need to put it on your bucket list, whatever list you have before you die. You need to do it. You need to pick like a, a class five or six rapids. Make it exciting. Like you need to do whatever. But we decided to go whitewater rafting. And I remember specifically as we're going down the Chattooga River in North Georgia, we're just having an incredible time. There's only five people on the raft. There's Marla and I, and then there's another couple from Florida, which we can knock people from Florida if you guys want to later. Wait a minute, that'd be gossip. Never mind. But there were five people on the raft, so there were two couples. All of us lived in Florida at the time. And then there was the person who was the guide. And he was the one telling us and kind of barking out orders. And he would say, hey, you need to go hard right. You need to go hard left. You need to, you need to backpedal on the left in case we had to swing around because we're in the Chattooga River. If you've been on that river, there are many rocks, many submerged rocks, of which he could see because he's the guide and things that we could not see because we were just paddling. And I remember specifically, as we, it seemed like every time we got up to these rapids, and our guide was telling us specifically what to do, and he'd be shouting out these orders. The guy on the other side was like going rogue, doing whatever he wanted to do. So every time that we would get up to an obstacle, every time there would be an obstacle or a rock or, or a little waterfall or something that we had to traverse, we were always in the wrong position because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to. I remember being so frustrated because what it did for us as we were on the opposite side, it made us work twice as hard to kind of counter what he was doing wrong. And he could hear just as well as we could hear. As the guide was shouting out orders and telling us what to do, all of a sudden now when an obstacle came up, we were out of position. Same thing happens in a church. When, when, we, when we have things of opposition that happen in the church... If we remain idle and we don't listen to the God and we don't respect the Word of God and we don't adhere our life to the Word of God and we just start talking about things instead of like God's Word speak to us and we start doing that, what happens is when the obstacles come up, even in the life of a church and in your life personally, when the obstacles come, you're not going to be in the right position. And it's going to take longer for you to, get, for you to recover from it. It's going to be harder for everyone else who's around you if you, if you are the man of your home, I would say this and I would just challenge you with this. If you know that gossip exists in your home, you are held to a higher standard in your home to be that spiritual leader. The, to, to, to direct the course of your home toward God-like principles, biblical principles, to shape your, your kids and your wife and those who are around you. It's your responsibility to say, what we're saying is wrong. We need to right the ship. We're going off course. We need to be gospel-centered, mission-minded, in needing, in, in, in recognizing those in need of a rescue, so that even as families, that we could row our own boats in the, cause, in, in the name of Jesus Christ to, being, to bring the redemption story to someone else. But if you're the man in your home, that is your responsibility. 
Even if your wife has this inkling and, and she tends to talk more than maybe what you do. I've heard it say this way. What, and this is how I've heard it illustrated. If something's going on in your home, and, and you're the spiritual leader of the home, if Jesus were to come knock on your door, and your wife would answer, yes, she would be, if, she's, if she is the, the, the person who's been talking inappropriately and gossiping, she's accountable. But what Jesus is going to do is say, thank you very much, ma'am. Oh, can I speak to your husband? And then when the husband gets there, the Lord's going to say, why aren't you governing your house well? Why aren't you governing your home well? You knew this was going on. We see that represented after the fall in Genesis 3. Who did the Lord speak to after the sin? I realize there was sin on both on Adam and Eve's part, but who did the Lord speak to? He spoke to Adam first. Continuing on. In verse 5 through 8, I want us to see this. Then the fifth time, Sinbalat sent his aid to me with the same message. And hid in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. An unsealed letter in this time meant that it was for public reading. If it was a sealed letter, it would have a seal, a specific seal, to where if it were opened, they would know that the, that the message was tainted. But they literally and specifically sent an unsealed letter because they wanted everyone's hands to receive that letter to have read it. Kind of a cultural way of gossiping. Verse 6, it says, In which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, and you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. That there is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. What's interesting here is the way that Nehemiah presents their lies. They lie to him in three different ways. They lie to him. And if you draw your attention uh, to this, if you would please, in verse 6, it says these words, that the Jews are plotting to revolt. This is not even remotely true. They're not plotting a revolt by any, any way. I mean, the, the revolt, he's not even going to be their leader once the work is completed. Nehemiah, he's the governor at this time. He says, I'm just simply a governor, and I've already told King Artaxerxes, as soon as the work is complete, I'm out of here. I'm not planning a revolt. I just want my city to be put together. He counters their lies with truth. Next thing. At the end of verse 6, and he says to the reports that you are about to become their king. He's not about to be their king. He's their governor. They appointed him governor, not even a position that he wanted. He is their governor at this time. He says, I, I'm, not, I'm not their king. I'm going to be serving your king as soon as this is over. That's the truth. As a matter of fact, if he wouldn't have gone back to serve the, the king, to sing, uh, rather to serve King Artaxerxes, it would have cost him his life. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to be the king. And then they claim, he says, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem that there's a king in Judah. Truth is this. This is the third exile, tr uh, exile trip back to Jerusalem. The first one was, was led by a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. The second one was led by a guy by the name of Ezra. Ezra is the religious leader. He is a prophet. 
He is, he is bringing about religious reforms. He had been doing that for 14 years prior to Nehemiah even being there. So what they're saying is not true. He says, and have even appointed prophets. Ezra was already in place before he got there. Which is interesting, because that also means that there's a, a political and social leader working in conjunction with a spiritual leader. Wouldn't that be awesome in our country today? Instead of working in opposition, that we'd be working together, hand in hand. And you counter gossip with truth. And look what he says in verse 8. Nehemiah, he says, and I, sent, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up in your head. I would have to tell you, this is, this is a very, very good thing to do as far as if you hear gossip, if you counter gossip in the church with truth, it's actually kind of funny. Because if you counter gossip in, in the church or even in your workplace with truth, the person who's gossiping has no idea what to say. And all of a sudden, they may be sure and they may be so confident and it's this way and it's this way and all of a sudden they start backpulling and blah, 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 what? no, 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 no. But if you counter that gossip with truth, they have no idea what to say because they're speaking lies and you're speaking truth. If you want to silence a critic, give them the truth. Give them the truth. So thus far, we've kind of talked about how Nehemiah has, has kind of gone in. He's rallied the troops. We're not going to read the rest of that story, but he completed that work in remarkable, remarkable time. In 52 days, he took the walls and the gates and the doors that were all a shambles, and the people were feeling so insecure. And he did all of that work in 52 days. We can't do anything as a government in a year. We can't build anything. We can't build a highway system but for, I mean, how long did it take to actually build the bypass? Somebody tell me. Yeah, you're like, I don't know. All I know is several years. Yeah. Like, he, he had gone through to total strangers and brought this reform. And he had had these people that were excited about doing the work of God. And he'd gone in and he says, I just want you to, I want everybody to get it like I get it. He was comfortable where he was. And he felt compelled and, and he brought this vision to a people and he brought this reform to a vision. This is before Christ. How exciting would it be for us to uh, have us as a church to, be, to just rally around the cause of Christ. Even just a little bit more than what we already are. So all of us would be basically rowing in conjunction with one another so that us as families and individuals that we would be seeking out people who are lost and broken and far away from God to say, you know what? I, I don't know necessarily how to do this, God, but I'm trusting you with this. And all I know is I need to row in that direction. But it takes us to do a whole lot less talking and a whole lot more working and serving. Now, these are all going to be on the screen. I, I've kind of broke this down because the standard of which you hold a Christian to is different than the standard that you would hold a non-Christian to. So the, the, the question that's going to be answered right here, and I'll try and do so with some brevity, 
is how should I handle gossip? We've, we've identified what gossip is. We've talked about what the source of gossip is and those kinds of things. How should I specifically handle gossip? Christian to non-Christian. First thing is to, to discern what gossip really is. Discern what gossip really is. Just to discern what it really is. It's not true. It's not reliable. It's not something that you need to be engaged in. So therefore, the second thing on the list is avoid the water cooler situations. People who... In, okay, this... I realize we have a water cooler at the church, so I'm not talking about us. But in places that I've worked before, there's always this water cooler. I was in aviation, so the rallying point that people uh, would go to is I uh, worked in the elements. The outside, the hangar doors would be open. It'd be a hundred and some degrees where we worked. And we would always, people would kind of rally around the Gatorade cooler. And if you wanted to hear the dirt of what was going on around the company, everybody who really didn't have a clue, but if you wanted to hear the dirt, you'd go to the water cooler. Consequently, if you want to avoid the gossip and the busybodies and, and all the, the idle talk, avoid the water cooler situations. At your work, if you see a bunch of people rallied around the water cooler, just kind of spreading lies and talking about people, the way, to, the way to, for you to address that as a follower of Jesus Christ, different than the standard of which a non-Christian should live up to, avoid those situations. There's a proverb to lend a hand to that. Fourth thing is for you, this is, this is for you to bring the gospel to later. Find the source of that, goss- of that gossip. Find the source of it. The source of that gossip is an awesome place for you to be able to plant seeds and to grow and to nurture the gospel into. Because more than likely, if you can find the source of that gossip, that's the brokenness that the, goss- or the, the, the gospel specifically needs to minister to first. They're already broken. Find the source of that. Next thing, give them grace. It's a different standard than what you hold other Christians up to. Give them grace. We talked about that last week. Leave the door open for the gospel. That also kind of lends a hand to last week. Leave the door open for the gospel. If you go and you hear gossip going on and you just, you kind of sit back and you let someone, even if you're not the person talking, but if you're the one receiving and receiving and receiving and you don't stop it, you are also gossiping. And as soon as you, as you put yourself on that level of, of being a gossiper, the gospel cannot flow in that direction anymore. But you want to leave the door open for the gospel. You counter that you counter that, that gossip with truth, but you don't do so in a condescending way. You don't do it in a harmful, like beating a nail kind of way. You do it in a loving way. And then if you're presented with somebody like I, I was yesterday, counter the gospel with facts. Facts. Reliable facts. Not your ideas, not what you heard in Bible study, not what you heard in prayer group, not any of these things, not, not something that you think to be true, but something that is a verifiable, a verifiable fact. That's the way you counter it if, if you're presented in that situation. That's the exact same way that it, and I, it really didn't even dawn on me until I was discussing this with Marla yesterday. That's exactly the way that I tried to address it. Even the preacher has to take his own medicine. Isn't that amazing? And the next list is what you should do. Please listen intently. Christian to, to Christian. First thing, discern what gossip is to the principles that are already given. 
discern what the gospel is, the gossip is rather. Look what the next thing is. Different than the previous list, meet gossip with biblical truth. Meet that gossip with biblical truth. There it already shows a standard of which it's different non-Christian to Christian. When Christians hold non-Christians to the same standard that, that a Christian should be held to, it actually separates them and the gospel cannot flow in that direction. If they, if they are not walking with God in that time, they're not to be held to the same standard that you and I are as Christians. You meet that gossip with biblical truth. Next thing, talk individually. Not in a prayer group, not in a Bible study. You talk individually. You go to that individual. All these principles are taken from Matthew 18. This is how to handle conflict within the church. You go to that person individually and you talk to them, maybe over a cup of coffee. Is that a difficult conversation, church? If it is for you, say amen. That would be a difficult conversation, but it's a necessary conversation. So we all can be rowing together, going in the same direction, doing the mission of, of God, in, not only in this city, but also in our community and globally. But you talk to them individually. Next thing, going right down the list. You help bring them toward repentance. You talk to them as, as, as in, in love and in grace and in care. And you talk to them and say, you meet them with biblical truth. You talk individually and you say, what you're doing is wrong. It's sin. It's not right before God. And you need to change. In any sin before God needs to be repented of. So we should lead them toward repentance. Next thing, this probably looks even more familiar, point five, is bring one or two non-biased parties into the conversation. One or two non-biased parties. Don't bring, don't bring like they did, Sambala, Geshem, Geshem and, and the whole crew, and he kind of brought all his friends together, and he says, hey, Nehemiah, I've talked to everybody, and this is what they say you're doing. But instead, we bring one or two Christian non-biased parties, non-offended, non-affected parties, and kind of get them together and say, and you want to bring them toward repentance. You don't want to, you don't want to scold them. You don't want to do any damage to them. You just want to reveal to them the truth of God's Word and say what you're doing is wrong and hope that they would repent. If they won't listen to you individually, bring one or two people along. You're not, this, is, this is still a very personal way of handling conversation. This is what we're supposed to do as a church. This is what we're supposed to do. This is still a personal way. But when you get to point six, it becomes more of a corporate problem than just a personal problem. Right on down the line. At this point, if you've talked to them individually, you've confronted them with the Scriptures, not just, not just speculation, but verifiable, verifiable biblical truth. And if they have not responded to you personally and you've brought one or two people into the mix and you've talked about it and you've discussed the Word and you've, you've kind of taken it apart and you've kind of gracefully and prayerfully discussed these things and if it's escalated, now it's gone beyond the level of being just a personal dis- discussion. Now it needs to be more of a corporate discussion and now you're bringing the church leadership into the mix. Now you're bringing the pastor into the mix or if this is something happening... In, in the youth ministry, then you go to the youth pastor. You don't go to the, to the pastor if things can be handled on, on different tiers. That's just 
practical. That's the way it is. Should make sense to you already. But you see, there's, there's a difference of, okay, it, personally, I'm handling these things. They've not listened to me personally. So now I need, to, I need to have more of a corporate approach and I need to get the leadership involved. And usually when it goes from a personal level to a corporate level, it usually, to be honest with you, it doesn't bode well. It usually doesn't bode well. Because if their hearts haven't been open to their friends telling them the truth, chances are they're not going to be open to the leadership telling them the truth either. And the last one is you have to treat them as an unrepentant person. Just saying, you know what? I'm going to be grace-filled in my conversation. I'm not going to be demeaning to you. I'm not going to degrade you. I'm not going to do those things. But I, I have to treat you like an unrepentant person. In that area of your life, I cannot, I cannot address this issue. I've presented the word. I've talked about other people who are more spiritually mature. I've gotten the, the church leadership involved. And if that person is acting in a way that they're unrepentant, that you have to just say, God, that's yours. I, I, I've, I've done what I, I know to do biblically and I put it in your hands, Lord. And you pray for the person and you want them to repent and you want them to be, to be restored eventually. Like I said, usually when it gets to that point, it doesn't bode well. Now, the 10 years that I've been in ministry, I would say that the thing that has affected the churches that I've either served in, in just, just ministry, before full-time ministry, but just in serving ministry, all the way through in the last 10 years, the thing that has affected the church the most was Christians talking. Christians talking. It has affected... Not only individuals and it's tainted individuals and it's because, see, Christians, we, we have this line of trust because we're all of the redeemed of God and we have this trust level when it comes to other Christians and saying, okay, yeah, they're, they're Christians too, so they, they kind of lend an ear a little bit more to them. And what happens is it, when they lend their ear and if they're told gossip and these mistruths, the person automatically opens himself up to it if they haven't defined what gossip is. And if that gossip is not accounted for and it's not addressed in a biblical way, let's on your screen right now, what happens is it plants seed of sin and separation within the body of Christ. And it starts splintering the body of Christ. So now we're not all on mission together. Now we've got a few on mission over here and we've got a few idlers over here. There's a proverb. I love this. I'm an outdoors kind of guy. So it kind of speaks into uh, something that's happened to me. Proverbs 26.20 says this, Fire goes out without wood and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. Quarrels disappear when gossip stops. That's the same in your workplace. That's the same right here in our setting. That quarrels stop. Quarrels go away when gossip stops. And anybody who's ever gone camping and ran out of wood, you know exactly how that feels. Very slowly. The city on the hill that Jesus talked about, the light starts to dim a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And the church gets a little bit more ineffective. And the church starts looking a little bit more into themselves. And they start to think about themselves and talking about themselves all the while. There are people drowning, separated from God. 
and we're missing it. How great would it be as a church for us as family units and individuals to go into our workplace having some of these principles like really we've prayed over them and not just listen to what I've said but use these principles and they kind of guided your conversation as difficult as they could be but they would guide your discussion when you're at work and you see that person who's hurting and that you would already have some credibility with them because you haven't been an idler and a gossip and a slanderer and a busybody and yet you have kind of mind your own business and then when you see that person who's broken and hurting whether at your school or whether at your workplace or somebody who's a family member and yet you would be able to say on the authority of God's word the way of Christ is a little bit different and then we would all row our boat to rescue that what was lost I think our community would be a better place. I think your family reunions would be a better place. If they're like my family reunions of, of years ago. There's something happens with the children of God when Christians do the work of God. And you do the, you do the work of God with your heart and your hands and a lot less with your mouth.